0: The longer we stay, starting with the acute and growing risk of an attack by a terrorist group known as ISIS-K, an ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan, which is a sworn enemy of the Taliban as well. Every day we're on the ground is another day we know that ISIS-K is seeking to target the airport and attack both U.S. and allied forces and innocent civilians.
1: That was President Biden on Tuesday asserting that the U.S. military is on track to complete its mission in Afghanistan by August 31st, indicating that the United States' involvement in that country could end as soon as next week. It's a highly controversial move that has taken on new urgency as a result of alarming intelligence that an ISIS affiliate is plotting an attack on the airport and the American troops still there. There are even indications that some ISIS fighters have been videotaping the gates at the airport as a precursor to an attack. Just another reminder that the country we invaded to purge it of terrorism 20 years ago is still riddled with terrorists who mean to do us and our Afghan partners harm. We'll discuss with David Sedney, the former president of the American University of Afghanistan, who is now working desperately to get his one-time students and faculty members out of the country on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability,
0: preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help, so, help so help me God. 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 So help
1: me God. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And
2: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
1: So I got to say, you know, the gap between the administration's, I don't want to say happy talk, but positive talk about all the troops, all the Americans and the Afghans, they are getting out of the Kabul airport. They keep citing the tens of thousands who are being airlifted out. The gap between Those numbers and the reality on the ground for especially our Afghan partners, interpreters and embassy staff, others who worked with us is pretty striking. And I was talking... After the briefing that uh, Secretaries Austin and Blinken gave to the House of Representatives today, it was a classified briefing, but I was able to talk to some members who were there, not about the details, but one of them, Tom Malinowski, who's been on this program quite a bit, Democrat from New Jersey, former State Department human rights official under Obama, was just livid, saying there's just no way that the military is going to be able to get any significant number of Afghans out of that country, and they keep sort of blurring the the lines here saying we're trying to get our Americans and our Afghan partners out. They're getting the Americans out, but they're not getting the Afghans out, and those are the people who are most at risk.
2: Look, it is the case that over the last couple of days, we're recording this on Tuesday, the Pentagon people involved in, in this evacuation seem to have broken the logjam. Um, I think over you know Monday, by Monday night, um, they airlifted 21,000 people out of Afghanistan. I think President Biden said that just in the last 12 hours, they'd gotten another 6,000 out. The numbers are going up. But if there were ever an event that could be aptly described by the phrase, too little, too late— It's this one. And you talked about the gap between what the administration is doing and the job that still needs to be done. Well, the gap between expectations is also yawning as well, because I think the administration feels like it can get all the Americans out and a limited number of Afghans who helped the United States in its mission. But for the people who have been intimately involved in this project over the last uh, 20 years and who spent time there and who know Afghans and really understand in a visceral way the sacrifice that our Afghan partners have made. Their expectation is that we shouldn't be talking about, you know, a few tens of thousands of, of Afghans. We should be talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Afghans who we have to help. And I think we're going to hear that soon from our guests. I will say that the one thing that Joe Biden has, seems to have done, he always talks about bringing the country together. I'm really struck by how much consensus there is among people, Democrats and Republicans, people who in some way have been involved in the Afghan mission over the last 20 years, they are unified in their anger, in their disgust, and in their inability to really give Joe Biden a break on this. I mean, they yeah, well, are very I mean, emotionally a, there, involved in this one.
1: Right. There's a fundamental contradiction here in what the president and administration officials have been saying about all this i mean their major defense is we had no idea that the Afghan government was going to collapse as rapidly as it did. There was no intelligence that said that, you know, by the middle of August, uh, the Afghan military uh, will fold and the government will flee. But there was intelligence that that was likely to happen over a period of time, whether it be weeks or months or 18 months, so here we are all, you know, focused on what about all those Afghan partners who worked for us, who who fought side by side with us, who you know were employed at the embassy, who were employed by the military, who served as interpreters. How are we going to get them out? Four months, six months. 18 months down the road, if that's when the Afghan government collapsed, because we would have all been gone, right? So the idea that, you know, this was, you know, the the White House was hit by this sort of unexpected development of a complete collapse was, makes no sense. They knew it was going to happen. It was just a question of timing. And it's pretty clear there was no planning at all to get large numbers of Afghan partners out of the country before the Taliban took over.
2: Uh, yeah, you, you know, you, you, it feels almost like, you know, we've done this before, you know, we've seen this movie before. We get to the end of our mission and a switch flips and we just don't look back. We just say, that's it. We got sucked into this quicksand. We now have to get ourselves out And, you know, that is it. We're getting out and we're not looking back. And, um, you know, and I think there is a there will be a price uh, to pay for that, a price in human lives in Afghanistan and potentially a price in our national security interests uh, going forward. Um, Well, sure. And look,
1: one one point that Malinowski also made, and I alluded that to that in the in the uh, introduction to this episode, we went into Afghanistan to get rid of the terrorists who were there. And now we are leaving, packing up our bags and getting out of the country to get out of the way of the terrorists who are still there. It's kind of a highly ironic and kind of sad way to end our experience. It is. In that in a 20-year war, fleeing the country because of a possible terrorist attack.
2: I mean, I will say this, uh, if you are Joe Biden, and you know, the military is dealing with this incredibly complex, difficult operation, and our service members who are doing this are vulnerable to an attack by a terrorist group, at that point, you're going to do everything you possibly can to get them out as quickly as you can. And your main priority is going to be avoiding an attack and casualties. There, so far, there have been no casualties at all. And I'm sure that the Biden administration wants this operation to end, you know, without a single no, casualty. There have been no casualties
1: of American troops. Of, of American, in, in, in of American troops, of American yeah. troops. Uh, but, but, have died.
2: Right. but you have to say that, look, Joe Biden painted himself into this corner. It didn't have to be this way. Uh, if we didn't, if we had a more orderly, more planned Withdrawal, we wouldn't have had the chaos um, that potentially makes us a ripe target for a terrorist organization like ISIS-K.
1: Yeah, uh, and meanwhile, I should point out uh, that the White House is still, uh, you know, trying to do the best spinning it can. Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, keeps tweeting from his official White House account. Press stories that from liberal columnists and, you know, Democrats um, criticizing the media for uh, overplaying the story and um, being overly negative in our coverage of um what's going on there. I don't know how much um, traction he's going to get from that, uh, except in some corners at MSNBC. I think Lawrence O'Donnell is like, off praising what a great job the U.S. military was doing last night. But um, I suppose that, that's, not, that's not the gonna base. not going to get
2: that from Skullduggery. <laughs> no,
1: they won't get that from Skullduggery. Yeah. Even though we're still going to try to have Klain on. Um, he was before he was White House Chief of Staff. Um, but... Um, Enormously talented
2: guy and uh, mm. uh, a friend of the pod, uh, to <laughs> coin a
1: phrase, in the past. But we'll in see. In the past. <laughs> we'll see how long that uh, continues. <laughs> anyway, uh, we have a uh, interesting guest uh, to talk to, David Sedney. So let's get to it. Okay, we are now joined by David Sedney, who is the former president of the American University of Afghanistan and also served as deputy assistant secretary of defense for Afghanistan, Pakistan and Central Asia between 2009 and 2013. Uh, Mr. Sedney, welcome to Skullduggery.
0: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: So you have had long involvement in Afghanistan, and I know you're very intent now on trying to get the uh, former students and faculty of the American University of Afghanistan out of the country. You had a chance to watch the president's remarks this afternoon. Give me your thoughts right off the bat.
0: Well, I don't think we really learned a whole lot more in there, essentially repeated what we already know. I didn't catch anything uh, that was surprising in there. I think he's focused on, and it's it's a good thing that he's focused on the numbers he's getting out, but as he's made it before clear, he's not going to rethink any of the fundamentals that are involved here, and that uh, he really wants to try and move move on. So he's sort of hoping that things go well so that there's no further stain upon his presidency. And I, I thought he did okay in that. I thought it was probably the better of, the, of I guess, the four talks he's given on Afghanistan in about a week.
1: I mean, it strikes me that, you know, one issue here is the president keeps talking about completing the mission with a bit of uncertainty about exactly what that mission is. Clearly, uh, first and foremost, is getting American citizens out. But the president and administration officials keep talking about also trying to get as many Afghans out as possible. But it is hard to see how that can be accomplished when the Taliban is saying they're not even going to let Afghans through to the airport and telling them they may not leave. So how are we going to get these Afghans out? And do you have any idea how many people we're talking
0: about? Well, neither I nor anyone else has any idea how many we're talking about, because there's a, we have uh, uh, the American citizens, green heart holders, et cetera. Even, though, even those, the administration doesn't know how many there are. And then the people who uh, are special immigrant visas uh, who have started that process, they have an idea, I think, of how many there are, but how many have already started the process, but how many are eligible. is quite a few more. could be as many as 100,000 more that, that have not even started the process. Then the final category one that a lot of the, uh, uh, that the, our, our colleagues at the American University fall into, uh, those who face uh, persecution because of their participation in activities that have advanced US foreign policy interest. And there's uh, really probably, I would ma- imagine, north of a million of those people who have participated in U.S. training and democracy, women who have founded businesses uh, after counseling and with loans uh, from organizations uh, f- funded by the U- funded by the U.S. government, as well as uh, people who engaged in media. So you can, there are many, many areas where the U.S. brought people forward, brought them up, uh, where the, their participation in those activities could well lead to persecution by the Taliban.
2: But is it your ex- expectation that the United States should bring out all of those people who, for the reasons you just uh, described, maybe in some in jeopardy or in peril? I mean, if you're talking about potentially more than a million people, that's...
1: it's clearly I'm, not going to happen by next week.
2: Well, it's not going to happen <laughs> by next week, but, but uh, what is your expectation? What should be done? Should they all be evacuated, perhaps not all to the United States, but a huge international effort to resettle them. That seems like a tall order, but do you think that's what should happen?
0: It's a very, very tall order, and, but you need to put it in the context of the other population exoduses that have happened in Afghanistan uh, really over the last 40 years uh, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979, that resulted in somewhere between 3 and 6 million refugees uh, fleeing to neighboring countries, particularly Pakistan and Iran, as well as to countries around the world. During the Civil War of the 1990s, uh, somewhat fewer, but maybe between 500,000 and and 1.5 million uh, fled Afghanistan. Uh, So uh, the fragility of the system is there. And uh, in many cases, people change their lives based upon encouragement from the United States. A woman uh, stepped forward out of, their fo- out of their homes to try and seek a new life in ways they never would have if the United States and its leaders hadn't said, we want to- we're a supporting woman. Please come out and join us. And then we uh, gave people classes on how to step up. There's many other areas where we are the proximate cause of what this uh, persecution might be. And it reminds you that uh, in, after Vietnam, uh, when the United States left Vietnam in 1975, policymakers originally thought most that the United States could conceivably bring out would be a few ten th- tens of thousands. Twenty plus years later, the United States brought out 1.3, brought in 1.3 million uh, Vietnamese who are now, in many, in many, almost every case, fine, upstanding citizens around the United States. And of course, many went to other countries as well. And in Afghanistan, they will also. So I don't think the number of, of uh, a million, 500,000 to a million is at all unrealistic. And I think it's likely to happen over the next 20 to 30 years, 20 to 30 years.
1: That's a long period of time. But the question, I think, it is, you know, what is going to be happening over the next few weeks here? And you know, one key question is, you know, are the people you're trying to get out, are they able to get to the airport? Is the Taliban impeding them? What is the communications you're having? What what are you
0: what are you hearing? The Taliban's been impeding them. Other Afghans have because there's a struggle. There are people who don't qualify, who go to the airport and hope to get in. There are criminals who will rob people on the way. So there's a whole host of obstacles. But the most important is is the, is the Taliban. And they've moved one way and another over the last eight days. where letting most people through, tightening up a bit. In the last 10 hours, it appears they've tightened up quite a bit. They've made some public statements. Uh, no one has any idea what's going to happen tomorrow. But the fact that people have been able to go through, I've talked to uh, people, I've talked to people who've made it out of Afghanistan, who have been bruised, uh, have been bruised, have scratches on them as, as people try and grab the clothes off their backs. And uh, who have been beaten by Taliban, been clubbed by their by, uh, AK-47s. So it's, it's a gauntlet, but... If people can't get to the airport, many of these people are going to flee anyway. They're going to flee to the borders with Pakistan and Iran. They're going to try and get to not just those neighboring countries in the beginning, but they're going to try to get to countries in Western Europe. They're going to try and get to the United States and Canada. They'll be coming across their border and into the rest of the world for many months to come. How worried are you about what
1: can happen as early as next week when the U.S. military pulls
0: out entirely? Well, I'm worried that what will happen then is people will head to the borders. So I'm worried about that. Actually, my biggest worry about what happens next week is not just the refugees we're talking about, but the return of terrorists. Um, The uh, al-Qaeda issued a very warm and welcoming statement uh, two days ago, hailing the Taliban victory, saying it's the next stage in jihad saying it proved everybody wrong, who said that the Taliban were gone and that the jihadis uh, were on the on the run, and that in fact, uh, they're going to be moving forward to new victories. And I think you could see a, um, a real uptick in the presence of those organizations, al-Qaeda and others in Afghanistan, and some of them may be looking for some early trophies. So I'm worried about that.
2: But th- that ship has, has already sailed in terms of the possibility of al-Qaeda coming back or reconstituting. I mean, we're leaving And so we're not going to reverse that. On the other hand, President Biden, one of the reasons that he is given for not extending the deadline is because of this supposed acute threat from ISIS-K that they uh, would see the chaos at the airport, U.S. troops there, other civilians as a target of opportunity. Perhaps that is the trophy that they might get. So I guess just putting yourself in the shoes of, of President Biden, do you understand why he is trying to do this as quickly as possible and trying to meet that August 31st uh, deadline? Isn't he in a bind given the potential terror threat? Or is the argument that we have put all of these Afghans in such a difficult and perilous situation that, that if we have to take some casualties to save them, that that may be what we have to do? What's your view on that?
0: Well, first of all, they're didn't have to be a deadline of any kind. It was the president who set the deadline 1st of September 11th. And then when his political advisors saw that the potential negative consequences of uh, pulling out of Afghanistan on the 20th anniversary of the attack on the United States and finding that the uh, Taliban and the Al-Qaeda were right back where they started, he moved it back to our administration, moved it back to 31st. But there didn't have to be a set date and this date had became symbolic, but there's nothing magic about this day as opposed to any others. And it could have been a more conditions-based approach or uh, one that was on um, our ability to work with. And clearly we found ways to work with the Taliban over the last uh, several weeks. Uh, so I think there are other ways they could have done it. Once they said it, they painted themselves into the corner And I think uh, as a president, uh, once you make a decision, there's a lot of pressure on you to keep it up, regardless of whether it was right or wrong. And I think he just painted himself into a corner, and now he's paying the price.
1: You were at the Pentagon in 2009 when President Obama approved the surge in Afghanistan over the advice of his vice president, Joe Biden. Who said we should be pulling out, and that set us on a course to stay in Af- to have been in Afghanistan all these many years, uh, when clearly we weren't making the kind of progress that military leaders were telling the public. As you look back on that period of the surge and those early Obama years, tell us, you know, what you thought then and what you think now about the decision Obama made to surge the troops and override the uh, concerns expressed by his vice
0: president, Joe Biden. Well, uh, President Obama got a lot of views at the time, including that uh, he should be putting even more troops in. But one of the things that was never really agreed to by most people, certainly not me at the time I was uh, at the Pentagon in the job that you describe as the Deputy Secretary for Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central Asia, but that President Obama, when he announced the surge, also announced the withdrawal. And uh, there are a number of uh, of really good books about that time. Uh, And one of the things the administration did is it brought in a large number of military and national security intellectuals into the Situation Room at the White House to watch the president's speech and to give instant commentary. And when it got to the point where the president said, yes, I'm going to send another 100,000 troops or so into Afghanistan, but I'm going to withdraw them almost right away, they all turned to the side and said, this isn't going to work. So the United States' ambivalence about what it's doing in Afghanistan has bedeviled us in many ways, and I could go into more detail than that. But the Vice President Biden got part of what he wanted. He didn't, uh, the, President Obama didn't go for what the military recommended. And it's certainly the uh, idea that we would send 100,000 troops in and then a year and a half start to withdraw them and tell the Taliban and Pakistan that we were going to withdraw the troops even before they got on the ground. What that basically told the Taliban was, let's just wait, wait it out, and they have the uh, commonly reflected saying that, that the Taliban have that we have the wa- you have the watches, we have the time is proven right. Uh, the United States is showing that it doesn't have the strategic staying power in this case, and. Uh, the next chapter and what happens in Afghanistan uh, is uh, there's only one thing sure about it. So there's going to be a next chapter and it's going to be problematic for the United States.
2: So what you're what you're uh, saying echoes an op ed piece that just ran in The New York Times, which I'm sure you're familiar with by Ryan Crocker, one of our most experienced diplomats who served there, who served in Pakistan and many other places in the region. And he made the argument that we don't have the strategic patience required to get the job done in Afghanistan. And I assume you you agree with that. But the question is, how do you define patience? How much time should we have spent there to get the job done? I mean, is it akin to leaving troops in South Korea or in Europe during the Cold War? Should we have been there for decades and decades to prevent the Taliban from from taking over again and and, uh, giving the Afghans a shot of building a pluralistic uh, free society?
0: Well, in a sense, we've seen this movie before. In the 1980s, we spent billions of dollars in covert aid to the Mujahideen that enabled them first to hold their own against the Soviets and eventually uh, forced the Soviets to leave in 1989. Um, At that point, uh, we felt we, we had accomplished our mission. We pulled out of Afghanistan and ignored the consequences, which then led to a horrific civil war, the takeover of the Taliban, the rise of the Al Qaeda. Meaning that uh, in 2001, after after the 9/11 attack on the United States, we went back in again. So, and then we, when we went in, and I was I was there on the ground at the time uh, in a number of different jobs, we'd have people, Secretary of. Uh, Defense Secretary of State who would say, we learned the lessons in 1989. We're not going to forget about Afghanistan again. We're not going to abandon it. But the Taliban learned a lot of lessons too. And even more so, I would say Pakistan. And uh, they had a long-term plan. We never had a long-term plan. As the people have said, we had at the most we impact Afghanistan for 20 years. We had 21-year plans. Uh, we sent people in one time and a shot. We can go into all the details. But in the end, uh, neither the American people nor American leaders uh, really ever pulled together and said, this is what we want, and this is how we're going to go about it, and let's move forward. Um, Instead, we did a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and unfortunately, we wasted far too many American lives and far too many American dollars along the way.
1: Look, you were the president of the American University in Afghanistan, which I suppose is a, is an extension of our nation-building efforts in Afghanistan. And of course, as you know, one critique is uh, this was a fool's errand to begin with. The idea that we could bring a pluralistic American-style type democracy to a country like Afghanistan was never going to work. The government was exceedingly corrupt at every level. Uh, there are reports, by the way, that Ghani, uh, when he left, Left. president Ghani when he left last week and flew to the United Arab Emirates took with him 169 million dollars in looted money from the Afghan treasury uh, gives us gives you an indication of the kind of government uh, that we were supporting. And that given that, how can you expect the um, American public to continue to want to support a war on behalf of a government riddled with such ineptitude and corruption?
0: Well, first of all, uh, uh, there are reports from Russia. The Russian media has been full of the reports you mentioned. Whether they're accurate or not, I don't know. I always, uh, I'm always, i a little doubtful about reports on what the, Rus- what's the Russians say on, this, uh, on the amount of money and all that. But the government in Afghanistan was not put in place by the Afghans. It was put in place by the United States um, and our allies in Bonn, in Germany, in 2001, as the Taliban were leaving. Uh, we but this is the government we were fighting for. This, this was our ally. This is who we were defending. Right. Government that we put in place. And in that government, we forced into that government warlords who we knew were corrupt and which we were paying off, and including uh, the former President Karzai, who admitted he took bags of money from the U.S., and bags of money from Iran, and he was our choice. We put him there. So for us to say it's all the Afghans' fault and we can wash our hands up and just blame them, the blame the Afghans' line that President Biden has put in, I think is egregiously wrong. Uh, we had a responsibility. We never had nation building. And that's one myth that's really important to push back. President Bush, President Obama, President Trump, and now President Biden have all explicitly stated the United States is not doing nation building in Afghanistan. We did bits and pieces. The American University that you mentioned is an yeah, example- I was gonna say,
1: what was the purpose of the American University in Afghanistan?
0: The American University was an effort to try and advance our ideals of democracy and freedom and equality for women, uh, which we do around Sounds like nation building. It, it doesn't sound like nation building, it sounds like a program. Nation, a nation building program is one where you have all the different parts working together. Uh, we have programs to support democracy and women's rights in just about every country in the world. That doesn't mean we're doing nation building, but we are trying to advance American interests and American values. And so nation building is a, is a phrase that gets tossed around, uh, but there's very few places where the U.S. has ever tried nation building. We failed more than we succeeded, but places like uh, South Korea, Japan after World War II, we did do it, but it required a huge effort, much greater than we ever put into Afghanistan. Uh, But uh, whether it's the university we're talking about, our um, efforts to uh, stop female genital mutilation in Africa, there are all kinds of things that the United States supports that are in our interest, but do not equate to nation building.
2: Mr. Sedney, as the president of the university there, you obviously were intimately involved in educating young Afghans who, for a time anyway, had the opportunity to um, build a new society there and try to change the dynamics of that country. As you see this tragedy unfold, give us your thoughts about the long term for Afghanistan. How, how Are you hopeful at all That the Afghan people have a certain resilience, believe in the ideals that we were there teaching them and ultimately can overcome the difficulties that they are facing now? Or are you despondent about the situation and not hopeful going forward? What's your just just trying to take your temperature here on how you're feeling about the future of Afghanistan?
0: Well, in the near term right now, I'm despondent. Yes. Uh, To see the suffering that's happening now, to know the suffering that's coming there's no way but to be, uh, to, to be saddened by that and to be sympathetic. But I went back to Afghanistan after I'd been with the State Department, the U.S. Department of Defense, because I had met many Afghan young Afghans. And I'd seen the, the hope and the desire for a better life in their eyes. And the American University and many other educational organizations in Afghanistan were building a group of young people who really believed that they could change the world. Not just change Afghanistan, they wanted to change the world. Some wanted to be doctors, lawyers, engineers. Some of them wanted to be philanthropists. Others wanted to be <laughs> entrepreneurs. And we, had, we actually graduated a number of amazing entrepreneurs. But education is a long game. It's a decades-long thing. You don't educate a 1,000 or so uh, young people and change a nation of 40 million over 10 or 15 years. You're talking 20, 30, 40 years. They have to educate their children. And I think there's hope there. The young people who I've worked with at the American University over the last six years, some of them will give up, but many more won't. Some of them will leave Afghanistan. uh, Some will stay. And uh, whatever happens in the future five years, 10 years, or 50 years from now, I think they will make it a better place. But the feeling right now, uh, they're feeling sad, they're feeling angry, uh, they're feeling betrayed, but at the same time, they're not giving up.
2: I guess that raises just one follow-up question, which is a lot of this is going to depend on the Taliban and whether the Taliban... Has changed at all, you know, is going to allow some degree of more freedom because they've become more sophisticated. They understand the importance of being part of the world community, of economic assistance and trade, so on and so forth. Anything that you've seen so far to suggest that that is a possibility?
0: Nope, not at all. Um, They're doing now pretty much exactly what they did in 96, 97, 98, when they came to power the first time. Uh, They start off by telling the rest of the world that they're going to be different than uh, people thought they were, but their actions immediately belie those words. In fact, uh, there's a number of areas where I think they're likely to be worse um, uh, in terms of their impact on both the Afghan people and the surrounding neighbourhoods especially in Kabul. They've worked to present themselves in a nicer light to the rest of the world. But what's happening in the rest of the country, and most Afghans don't live in Kabul, is really terrifying uh, in terms of people being dragged out of their homes and shot and left by the side of the road, women being forced to marry Taliban fighters. It's a pretty grim situation. Uh, and that's going to become clearer and clearer as time goes on.
1: And it does seem like they are cracking down harder and becoming even more sort of intransigent. You know, they're saying that Afghan citizens cannot leave and should not go to the airport is one sign. I've heard stories, I I don't know if this is confirmed, that they may be shutting off cell phone service in the next 24 hours or so. I don't know if you heard that or concerned about that, but
0: And in in some areas of the countries, we've heard those reports, uh, but the Taliban did that even while they were not in the government. They forced uh, the the closure of cell phone service uh, from dusk until dawn uh, almost throughout the entire country. They understand the power of communications. They understand the power of uh, social media and the internet. And I would expect that we would see Afghanistan being more and more cut off from the rest of the world. And uh, it's going to be a, a, a long, dark night uh, for, uh, the, for those in Afghanistan who would hope to become part of the rest of the world.
1: Well, on that grim note, uh, David Sunday, I want to thank you for joining us from Doha, where you are doing your best to try to get your former students and faculty members out. And we obviously uh, wish you as much luck in that endeavor as uh, you can possibly get.
0: OK, Well, thank you very much for having me you